Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. It's so lovely to have you here, as always. And how are you? Are you keeping well? Are you thriving? I am grappling with a bit of a busy schedule at the moment, aren't we all? But I'm working really hard to keep my balance as well. Somehow, we're in the thick of winter, even though winter hasn't officially started. We actually had snow here last week, which was remarkable and kind of fun. We rarely get snow in Ballarat, and this didn't actually settle on the ground, but it was still snow, and it caused great excitement in our co-working office. We all gathered at the windows to watch. It was such a pretty sight. We had the phones with photos and video being taken just to record this moment. It only happens probably once every few years. So the snow was fun, but it means that I'm also working on adjusting my routine and my wardrobe and my attitude in order to keep busy and active while it's cold. And this has been helped a lot by you, by the PP community, and the tips that you've been sharing with me for keeping well during winter on our social media challenge. And we've had some great tips from past podcast guests come in recently. Sarah Mackay, our neuroscientist friend, says there's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. And she comes from New Zealand, so she probably knows a bit about that. And I do agree that what we wear makes a big difference to how we experience the cold. So, and also as a kind of a winter outfit girl, I enjoy putting my boots and coats and scarves on. Mel Schilling from Married at First Sight, our lovely psychologist friend, recommends moving to Bali, which sounds delightful, but probably isn't all that practical for most of us. So her standby tip is just embracing the cold and getting out there and doing a bit of brisk exercise. Doesn't need to be for long, just needs to be, you know, a good swift walk or a run to boost our mood and and our motivation. And Joe Mitchell from The Mind Room says that social connection is key to keeping well over winter. So make sure that you're still getting out and about, perhaps have a red wine with friends or attend the theatre or the cinema or something with somebody else where you can keep cosy and entertained and keep yourself connected to others. And if you've got great tips for keeping well during winter, then keep an eye out for our prompts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook and um, shoot us through a message. We'd love to hear it. We're compiling it for a series that we'll put together over June for both social media and our newsletters. And I'll probably have a little chat about it here on the podcast as well. And of course, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere or somewhere in the warmer parts of the world, then just enjoy that while it lasts. Okay, so I think it's time to introduce our guest for today's episode. And I have to put a little warning at the beginning of this interview because it's fascinating and insightful and intelligent. 
but we do talk a bit about trauma and uh, touch on some topics that may be distressing for some of our listening. So just a little warning there if you're feeling particularly sensitive or you've experienced some trauma yourself of late, this might not be the episode for you. But if you're thriving and resilient, then please join me as we talk to our next guest. Today, we're talking about the well-being of our judicial officers, our judges and our magistrates. And my guest is Carly Shriver. She is the Judicial Wellbeing Advisor for the Judicial College of Victoria, a current PhD candidate and researcher at the University of Melbourne, a lawyer, a psychologist, and the mother of identical twin boys. Carly is passionate about facilitating meaningful and enriching conversations with our judges and magistrates, a collection of pretty smart and passionate professionals who fulfil both a complex and important role in our society. And we're going to be talking about the well-being of this group and the role that they do play and the research that Carly has been doing. So welcome, Carly. Hi, Ellen. Lovely to be with you. It's very exciting to have you here. You and I met a little while ago talking to our local lawyers here in Ballarat. So you made the trip out from Melbourne, which is very generous of you, (laughs) to come and talk to our local legal profession about wellbeing. So we discovered a mutual interest coming from slightly different angles in wellbeing for not just our legal profession, but I suppose wellbeing in professions generally and wellbeing at work. And I was fascinated to learn a bit more about your research. So this is a great opportunity to have a chat about it. Great. Can I start by asking you how you got interested in researching this topic yourself? Sure. So Look, there's, there's a long version and a short version to that story, so I'll try and give the short version. I started my professional life as a lawyer. Uh, I did a law degree straight out of school, probably for all the wrong reasons, like many people do. Um, you know, I, I, I got good marks in year 12. I thought that means I should either do law or medicine, toss up, you know, did law. And I, I um, persisted with it because I didn't hate it. I certainly didn't feel passionate about it, but I, I didn't hate it. Started my professional life as a lawyer um, at one of the big firms, then was a judge's associate at the Supreme Court. And it was after about three years in practice that I had, I suppose you might call it a mini career crisis, where I realised pretty deeply that legal practice was not the vocation for me long term. So I decided to go back to university and retrain as a clinical psychologist. And at that time, I took up a position at the Judicial College of Victoria, really to just pay the bills at the time without any expectation that it would lead to more. But through doing that education work with the the judges and magistrates of Victoria, I came to deeply care about them and and the work that they do for society and also the human dimension of that work, you know, the, the capacity for that work to have a personal toll. When I was undertaking my Masters of Clinical Psychology, I had a conversation with the then Chief Judge of our county court, who at the time was Michael Rosines. And he said to me, he was very aware that there'd been a sort of growing body of research uh, revealing high rates of depression and stress and anxiety within the legal profession generally, but that that research hadn't extended to the judiciary. And he was also aware of the increasingly demanding nature of uh, the work of the judges in his court and conscious also that um, a lot of senior judges were choosing to retire as soon as they reached the minimum retirement age rather than 
the sort of statutory mandatory retirement age, which meant that the court was losing a lot of its most experienced judges. So he said to me, we really need to have a conversation about wellbeing. At that stage, the, the topic of judicial stress was really quite taboo. The suggestion that judges might be emotionally or personally impacted by the work that they do was something that no one was really talking about. Whereas Marco Rosine said, okay, we need to start talking about it and to have a proper conversation, we need, we need um, robust evidence and research. So I knew that I had to do a master's thesis and I thought, well, that's a good idea. I'll do it for my master's thesis. But as I explored it, it became clear it was too big for that. So that, then it became the PhD. Yeah. <laughs> so little did you know when yeah. you were embarking on that path that you would not only be combining, I suppose, that, that original degree that you did, that original area of study with your new passion and area of study as a psychologist, but also that that would grow to become something significant for your initial profession. That's true. And I feel like I kind of landed on my life's work, really. I, I feel really passionate about it. And having done the research now and I'm in the final stages of writing it up, all I can see is, you know, opportunities to take this further now that we have a kind of base level of research, what we can do with that, that information to take it further, not only for the judiciary in Victoria, um, around Australia, overseas, but then also just thinking about the legal profession more generally and other professions for that matter. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about these people? What What is the path? Because probably many of our listeners have never met a magistrate or a judge or had any kind of involvement. What, what's the pathway to becoming a member of the judiciary? And what kind of people are we talking about here? Sure. Okay. So magistrates and judges are the senior members of our legal profession. So to be a magistrate or a judge, you have to have a law degree and you have to have certain numbers of years of practice. In reality, most judges at the Supreme County, you know, federal and certainly high court level, they had a very successful and illustrious career as barristers, generally speaking, prior to their appointment. That's not exclusively the case. So some Judges are appointed um, from the senior ranks of solicitors and also from legal academia as well. Um, but the overwhelming majority of them were barristers prior to their appointment. Among magistrates, it's slightly different. A lot of barristers also become magistrates, but probably uh, a larger proportion were working as solicitors. Because of the work of the magistrates' court being mostly in crime, a lot of magistrates have a background working in criminal law prior to their appointment. Yeah. What's the difference between a judge and a magistrate? Okay, so there's basically a, a hierarchy of courts and there's, there's also two systems in Australia because we're a federation. So there's a state system and a federal system. So the, in the state system, you've got what we call the summary jurisdictions. So those are kind of entry-level courts uh, and that includes the magistrate's court, the children's court and the coroner's court. Then there's the intermediate level, and that in Victoria is called the County Court of Victoria. In other states, it's often referred to as the District Court. So pretty much everything at some stage goes for the Magistrates' Court. So, you know, they, they hear a huge amount of matters relating to family violence applications, intervention orders, traffic incidents, you know, what, what's sort of colloquially referred to as crash and bash, and the kind of lower-level crimes. So magistrates can have a range of sentencing options available to them and oftentimes when they're sentencing somebody it won't be to a term of imprisonment it will be to a community corrections order or something else um, but they can sentence people to a term of imprisonment of I think it's up to three years 
when the crimes or indeed the you know the civil disputes are a bit more serious, uh, then they're heard in the county court. Um, and so a county court judge sitting in crime, um, they're hearing all the what we call indictable sex offences. So indictable means needs to be tried by a jury. And they also hear culpable driving matters, aggravated burglary, serious assaults, those kinds of matters. And they're also hearing medium-level commercial and civil disputes. Then in the Supreme Court um, in each of the states, that's where all the homicide cases are heard. Really serious drug trafficking or terrorist matters um, are heard in the Supreme Court. And also they've got unlimited jurisdiction for when, when it comes to commercial matters and civil matters as well. Yeah. And then I, I guess I should say that the, the nature of the hierarchy is that if a matter is decided, say, in the magistrate's court and the parties want to appeal it, it gets appealed to the county court. If a matter is heard in either the county court or the trial division of the Supreme Court and the parties want to appeal it, it's appealed to the court of appeal in that state. And then the, the court of final appeal, so the, the, the end of the road, is the High Court of Australia in Canberra. Where does the family court fit into that? Because that may be one that more of our listeners have had some exposure to somewhere sure, along the way. Sure, that's a really good question. So I was just then talking about the state system. Now, there's also a federal system uh, which basically deals with disputes or issues arising from laws made by the, the Commonwealth government as opposed to the state government. So there are three courts currently in the federal system. There's uh, the Federal Circuit Court, which used to be called the Federal Magistrates Court. There's the Federal Court of Australia and the Family Court of Australia. So the Federal Circuit Court hears a lot of family law matters actually um, and also a lot of immigration matters. The Family Court of Australia hears, I guess, the, the bigger, more complex family law disputes. And the Federal Court of Australia hears a whole range of matters, including intellectual property and corporations law and appeals from the Federal Circuit Court and that sort of thing. So our magistrates and our judges who sit and make these judgments in relation to all of these issues that you've mentioned, which I must admit, I suppose if I thought it through, maybe I would have put that, that's a lot of stuff, isn't yeah, it, when you think about sure everything is. from car accidents to immigration to civil disputes to crime to, mm-hmm. you know, family law. Family law, yep, yep. And so they're making big, important decisions. Why is their mental health and wellbeing significant? Well, obviously it's significant for them. Um, I mean, and, and I'm sure that we all want all our professionals in, in all sectors to be um, able to, to do the complex work that they do and not feel adversely impacted by that. So it's obviously important for the judges and magistrates doing the work that they are able to do it and feel well while they're doing it. But because of the role that they fulfil, not only in society but also in our democracy, because we have to remember that the courts are the third arm of government. So the courts also hold governments to account. Uh, government's not above the law either. And so the independence, impartiality, integrity of our court system is fundamental to our democratic system. And so the individuals that are sitting in judicial office are the ones that basically uphold that. And so because they're in, in these really kind of critical and crucial positions of responsibility and authority, there is the potential for stress that they might experience in the role to affect more than just themselves. Um, so there's the potential, and we know this from a lot of, a lot of research um, that's been done just generally on, say, human decision-making, that stress has the potential to impact our decision-making. So it makes it more likely that we will take mental shortcuts in making a decision because decisions are hard things to make. 
uh, which might lead to making kind of safer, more conservative decisions or, or decisions that are perhaps infused by unconscious bias or stereotypes and that sort of thing. We also know that from population research on stress that stress has the capacity to undermine our impulse control and our emotion regulation, so how we might behave in an intense situation. And because in the courtroom people are looking to the judge to be that that force of rationality and order and calm in the face of what would otherwise be possibly a pub brawl or, you know, something really chaotic, the judge and the magistrate's capacity to regulate their emotions and remain calm in the face of all of that is what the community expects to a large degree. Now, as I'm saying this, I want to be really clear that there's there's no evidence to suggest that the stress that a judge or a magistrate might be subjectively experiencing is in fact impacting their ability to make decisions or impacting their ability to regulate their emotions and their behaviour in court. Um, there's no evidence to that effect at all. There hasn't been specific research done on that. But because we know just from general research that's been done um, about the impacts of stress, then I think it's important for us to think about how stress might impact the human beings that are sitting in judicial office in those ways. Yeah, that's what struck me as you were describing that because I was sort of trying to imagine myself in that position of having to take on a lot of complex information (laughs) from an array of different sources, you know, not just, well, there's those presenting it, but all of the background, all of the history, all the reading that you've done. I know there's a huge amount of preparation that's required for judges and magistrates to do before they're even presented with evidence you know, in court. So to be able to take all of that, synthesise that kind of in the moment to be able to ask the relevant questions, Mm. the burden of responsibility to Mm -hmm. get it right, Mm -hmm. the fact that you then do have to manage your own emotions and regulate that. I mean, there would be some, and I'll ask you a little bit about the traumatic effect of the content of some of this information shortly, but, Mm. you know, you've got to be able to absorb all of that while, you know, maintaining your cool and are helping others to maintain their cool too. I know they have a responsibility to, you know, make sure that nobody else is starting to lose the plot. And to do all of that in the context of, you know, we all have bad days. We all have days when we are stressed, overworked, didn't sleep well, had an argument with a partner, struggling with finances, all the other factors that create stress in our lives. So that is a huge thing to be able to do all of that in one go. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, Ellen. And when I, when I started doing my research, or, or I guess the literature review for my PhD, I was looking at, you know, all the kind of peculiar aspects of judicial work. And I kind of clustered together these groups of stressors into three categories that I call stressors of workload, work type and work culture. And everything you've mentioned and, and you know, a number of other things as well come into that. So, yes, it's, an inherently and to some extent irreducibly demanding and difficult job that judges and magistrates are expected to perform. You know, they have really, really high workloads at all levels of the system, although it's experienced slightly differently um, at different levels. As you say, you know, they're having to receive and process um, and make decisions upon really complex information, often with highly traumatic content in the context of being the most visible person in the courtroom and the one that has to manage the courtroom atmosphere, often having to manage the mental health issues of people that might be coming before the court without any specific training in mental health and being daily immersed just in an atmosphere of conflict and disagreement, you know, which is not something Mm. that most of the time 
the rest of us are not not inhabiting that that space. That is the the kind of atmosphere of a courtroom on a daily basis. And then alongside all of that, there's kind of these other stressors that I call work culture or work work environment stressors, which is that the role is actually quite an isolating one. So when judges and magistrates are appointed, their previous friendships and relationships necessarily change to a certain extent because probably a lot of their close friendships, particularly their collegial ones uh, with practicing lawyers, and now those people are appearing before them. So Mm. there's there's a shift there. Also, just the structure of the working day, judges and magistrates go from their chambers, they call their office their chambers, their chambers to court and back again with very limited opportunity to interact with each other. And there's also a, a custom that judges don't go in, even if they do have some spare time, don't go and observe each other in court. So it's, it's isolating. The nature of it is it's very public. And, you know, anybody can walk in. Everything that is said in court ends up on transcript. There's intense scrutiny by the media, by appellate courts. And there's also this uh, need, I mean, it, we could call it a perceived need, but I think it's a very real need for judges and magistrates to constrain the spontaneous expression of their emotion while they're sitting on the bench. So they may have a whole host of intense reactions to what they're hearing in court, you know, the evidence that's being presented or how people are behaving or whatever. But because of the neutrality of their role and the visibility of their position in the courtroom, they have to constrain the expression of that emotion, which is difficult in and of itself. You know, mm. so there's all of these factors that together, and I guess there's another one that I should mention, which is that from time to time, judges and magistrates can find themselves the targets of stalking type behaviour if there's a particular litigant that's unhappy with the decision that they've made. So there's safety concerns in the role as well. So you bring all of that together, and I feel like it, you know, it, it does represent a cocktail of risk factors for occupational stress. There really are not too many people who could do this job and mm. do it well. And I think the fact that we've got such a robust and fabulous world-class judiciary in this country is something that we should really celebrate because it, it is a really tough job. Yeah, significant. You know, the, the more you're explaining there, I'm still, it's blowing my mind, you know, Ooh. just what, <laughs> what this role requires people to do. So we know why we should be taking this seriously and researching it and understanding it, and we know a bit more about who's involved now. Tell us a bit about what you've been finding as part of your research. So for my PhD, I approached five Australian courts from the magistrate's level up to the appellate level and everything in between. I approached the heads of jurisdiction and they all agreed for their courts to be involved. So there are five courts and from those courts, 152 judges and magistrates participated in a survey that I pulled together, but it was, it was basically a, a survey um, using various standardised and validated measurement instruments for different kinds of stress that had either been used by the Australian Bureau of Statistics with national mental health studies or had been used in research on lawyer stress. So I measured things like uh, what we call non-specific psychological distress, so just a generalised feeling of distress, depressive and anxious symptoms, burnout, um, secondary traumatic stress, which is, we can talk a bit more about that later maybe, but that's a kind of related concept to vicarious trauma and also alcohol use. And then if for, for those who completed the survey, they could opt in to participate in an in-depth interview. And I had hoped, my supervisor said, look, if you can get 12 to 20 judges to do an interview, that's great. That, that's a really good sample size. I ended up with 60, which wow. to me, and I, and I decided to do them all. And to me, that says that this is an issue whose time has come. Mm, there's an interest uh, there. Yeah, there was an interest and a desire to be heard on this issue. 
Mm. So it, it felt like it was the right time to be researching it. Anybody who's done research, and I know we have other psychologists and other, you know, researchers who listen in, but for those people who've never done research, the challenge of getting people to participate, especially busy people with big jobs, to participate, not only to complete a questionnaire, which is hard enough, but to get them to actually take the time to sit down and interview. I mean, A, that's an amazing result for you. I think it really goes to the quality of the research that you're producing. But yeah, I think that point about it being an issue that needs to be addressed is is just critical. So yeah, I'm amazed that 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 response, I think those of us who have done research are listening and going, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And look, I think it was helped by the fact that because of my work at the Judicial College, I was very well known to a lot of, a lot of judicial officers and and trusted, you know, and they understood where I was coming from with this research. I think that helped. Also, the way there was a very labour-intensive recruitment process. I, I basically got myself a speaking position at each of the internal courts conferences and delivered a presentation and distributed the survey as part of that. So it, um, I really thought about how to maximise mm. participation, but ended up with an overall participation rate of sixty-seven percent, which is wow. really great. Yeah. yeah. There's some great tips for any budding researchers out there as to how you might approach it. So, yes, some headlines on the outcomes would be fantastic. Just to put it in context, when I undertook this research, there'd already been about a decade of considerable research into the high levels of stress and mental ill health within the legal profession. And it begged the question as to what extent that extended to the judiciary. So using a couple of measures that had been used a lot in that research with the legal profession... So I used a measure that many psychologists listening in will know, the, the K10, the Kessler 10, and that's a measure of non-specific psychological distress. And I also used the DAS 21, the Depression, Anxiety and Stress Scales 21, um, that had been used in a lot of the lawyer stress research as well. Now, what I found was that the scores on the K10 revealed that judges and magistrates' levels of non-specific psychological distress or rather their rates of non-specific psychological distress, were were elevated in the moderate to high range compared to barristers um, and compared to the general population. They were still slightly less than solicitors and law students. But when we looked at distress in the very high range, at the extreme end of that scale, judicial officers' rates were considerably lower than all levels of the profession and the general population. Then when I compared those results with the results from the DAS-21, it was quite interesting. So previous research had shown that lawyers' levels, particularly of depression, but also anxiety and stress on that scale, are about three times the national average. What I found with judicial officers was that their rates of depression, anxiety and stress on that scale were dramatically lower than the legal profession and at the extreme ends, lower also than the general population. So when you take those two pieces of data together, what you've got is you've got elevated our rates of non-specific psychological distress, but it's not translating to elevated rates of mental ill health among judicial officers in the way that it is with lawyers. So it, it puts judicial officers in distinction, I guess, to the legal profession, yeah, what's been found with the legal profession. So that was the first thing. And I guess to extrapolate that further, what it says to me is that there is a stress problem among the Australian judiciary, but so far it's not translating to a widespread mental health problem, which is what we're seeing in the legal profession generally. So they're stressed but not unwell necessarily. Not unwell, yeah, that's right. Not unwell more than we would expect from a sample of the, of the general population. 
Yep. Now, when we look at some of the other things like burnout and secondary traumatic stress, now neither of these are diagnosable mental disorders. You know, they're not in the in the DSM, but they, there's a lot of literature around them in sort of occupational mental health stuff. So what we found with burnout, so burnout's understood to be a combination of three factors, high exhaustion, high levels of cynicism, what's referred to as cynicism, so kind of doubting the meaning and significance of your work, and then reduced professional efficacy, so reduced feelings of being able to accomplish anything worthwhile at work. What we found was that judges and magistrates' levels of exhaustion and cynicism were kind of high-ish, they were sort of moderate. So 50% of them scored in the moderate to high range on both exhaustion and cynicism. But levels of professional efficacy were really high, so good, that is. Mm. So only a small number of them showed dramatically reduced feelings of professional efficacy. So what that says to me is that burnout is a significant risk factor for people in judicial office, but it seems to translate to experiences of um, exhaustion, emotional depletion, feelings of loss of meaning, loss of significance, rather than feelings of not being able to competently fulfil the role. Yep. So they're feeling a bit wiped out. Yes. <laughs> or a lot wiped out, maybe, but they're not feeling any less capable. That's right. Or effective in what they do. That's yep. right. Okay. I, I kind of coined a, a little name for a typical profile that I found, which was high on exhaustion, high on cynicism and high on professional efficacy. So professional efficacy is, is you know, interpreted in the reverse direction to the other two. Yep. The people who are high on all three, I called them the jaded performers. So they, there's that sense of kind of being over it, but still doing a really good job. Still fronting up and getting it done. Yeah, yep. exactly, exactly. <laughs> the other point about burnout is that only a quarter of judicial officers in the study scored in the low risk range. So that's low exhaustion, low, low cynicism and high professional efficacy. So three quarters had a score on at least one of the subscales that indicates some level of burnout risk. So that's a significant proportion in my mm. life. Yeah. Uh, and then when we look at secondary traumatic stress, so secondary traumatic stress refers to the development of PTSD-like symptoms, but not as a result of experiencing a primary trauma but as the result of constant exposure to the traumatic experiences of others. And PTSD-like symptoms cluster into three categories. Intrusion, so intrusion refers to intrusive thoughts, unwanted flashbacks, nightmares. Avoidance, so wanting to avoid certain places, certain subject matter, certain feeling states. And then arousal, so it's kind of feeling keyed up, hypervigilant. And it measures symptoms just in the one week prior to completing the survey. So it's a very kind of time-limited measure. What we found is that over 80%, so 83.6% of judges and magistrates endorsed at least one symptom of secondary traumatic stress in the one week prior to completing the survey. Almost 50% said they had trouble sleeping. 46.7% said they had intrusive thoughts about work. Almost 20% said they felt as if they had relived the traumas of some of the people coming before them. And just over 10% said that they had disturbing dreams about the people that came before them. Also, the, um, the authors of this particular measure, the Secondary Traumatic Stress Scale, have reported a, a particular cutoff score that they think is significant in terms of indicating whether somebody perhaps should have formal assessment for PTSD. And just over 30% of judicial officers scored over that cutoff score. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that 30% of judges and magistrates would meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD, mm. but it is an indication of the level of symptomatology of, post you know, of this secondary traumatic 
symptomatology. It's having enough of an effect that they should be looking at. That's right. How that might be addressed. And it's really interesting. I don't, for people who are listening who perhaps don't know much about PTSD, and I'm far from an expert, but even just from personal experience, I used to do assessments for work cover claims mm. for stress for a number of years. I used to travel around the countryside, which, again, kind of isolating gig because it was just you on the road and you'd go and meet. And a lot of the people that I spoke to were police officers and members of emergency services and, and others who had dealt with some pretty gruesome stuff, you know. Mm, mm. And even for me, and I'm I'm guessing this is sort of just relating a a personal anecdote of what it's like to receive stories secondhand, you know, there are stories that I was told Mm. by people that are so firmly wedged in my brain (laughs) that I will never forget them, you know, just moments. And these these were just snippets of, Mm. you know, police officers talking about having to pick up body parts after the aftermath of you know suicides and trains and sorry I shouldn't yeah, no no absolutely yeah those sorts of things that you know I, I wasn't there I didn't see it but they described it to me and I I can visualize it in my head if that makes sense absolutely and once that image finds its way in we need to find a way to process it so that it doesn't kind yeah. of keep returning yeah absolutely. yeah and so I did that for a few years and most of the stories I heard were not that dramatic or significant but I'm imagining for some of our judicial officers they are actually especially if they're working in some you know criminal areas yes they're getting these stories every day that's right so those sitting in crime are probably at much more significant risk of secondary traumatic stress than those sitting in other areas although you know personal injuries matters that can happen in in the civil jurisdiction can be pretty distressing as well but absolutely, you know, if you think about the work of, say, a county court or a district court judge in this country, they're hearing all the serious sex offences that, uh, you know, are reported in society, many of which are perpetrated where the complainants are children. And a lot of that also includes child pornography cases, which occasionally involves or requires the judge and others in the courtroom to actually view some of that material. Mm. Then you've got, you know, culpable driving matters where somebody who, you know, has never had even a whiff of a criminal record does something a little bit silly in a car, kills somebody, and now really has to serve uh, a pretty lengthy time in jail. And everything, you know, I mean, there's, there's homicide cases in the Supreme Court and then, you know, the huge volume of family violence matters that come before the magistrate's court. For judges and magistrates sitting in crime, they are dealing with and receiving it and not only having to listen to, but having to think about, process, evaluate, and then make decisions about that information. And they're doing that on a daily basis. So it's it's really high level and constant exposure. Mm, it couldn't help but have an effect. Absolutely. And I even remember, you know, when I was a judge's associate myself in my mid-20s, my judge was mostly a commercial judge, but he did do six months in crime while I was working with him. and. I do remember during those six months, that was the one time in my life really as an adult where I really didn't feel safe being in my house alone at night. So it was just the beginning of a sort of vicarious trauma reaction where all of a sudden the world was not feeling like the safe place that I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that our judicial officers are dealing with and obviously it's having an effect from the outcomes of the studies that you've done Mm. and I'm interested in the the where to from here what does this mean in terms of helping assisting what does it mean in terms of occupational health 
And also there's an intriguing little piece in there about what's stopping these people from falling over entirely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a really, really good question. So interestingly, and it's probably not entirely a coincidence, but my undertaking this research coincided with a real opening up of the discussion about judicial wellbeing, not only in Australia, but overseas as well. And so I found myself by virtue of the fact that, you know, I've done this research in Australia being invited to speak about this general topic in many locations around the world. So it's definitely become a topic that courts are grappling with. And it's fair to say that Australia and particularly the state of Victoria is leading the way, certainly in the region, in this Asia-Pacific region, but possibly even internationally. I'm yet to find a jurisdiction that is more progressed in terms of the discussion around judicial stress and wellbeing and addressing it. So um, even though I haven't fully published and, and written up everything with the PhD yet, uh, I have presented the findings to the judiciary and so the courts are able to start making use of that. And so, for example, a number of jurisdictions, and I'll speak principally about Victoria here because that's where I work, a number of jurisdictions have convened judicial wellbeing committees to think about how the courts can implement interventions and programs to better support judges and magistrates in the work that they do. And this involves thinking not only about how judges and magistrates can be supported to manage the inevitable stress that they face in the role, but also whether courts can perhaps do things differently to prevent unnecessary exposure to certain kinds of stress. So there's kind of both the management and the prevention side of it that the courts are working on. So if we think about the management side of it, obviously for a judge or a magistrate, particularly those sitting in crime, but just across the board, there are many irreducible sources of stress and exposure to traumatic content that will always, have always been, will always be part of the role. It's not possible to make the job stress-free. So this is where the courts are looking to what other disciplines do, you know, other professions that also have a similarly high uh, risk of exposure to that kind of stress and that, that kind of material. And one of the, I guess, key interventions that's used in the mental health professions is regular proactive supervision. So where a professional will meet um, usually on a monthly basis, sometimes maybe a little bit less than that, but with an appropriately skilled professional, not, not only to think about how they manage the work itself but also how they can manage the emotional fallout from that work and so most of the jurisdictions in Victoria now have a court-funded program for proactive we call it proactive counselling and debriefing with appropriately skilled mental health professionals there's also a judicial officers assistance program in Victoria now so that's I guess similar to an EAP but for specifically for judicial officers so that there's always a number that somebody can call 24-7 if, if needed. And then we're thinking about, you know, other aspects of management as well around whether group process is a good idea, getting judges and magistrates together in small groups to, you know, with a facilitator to talk about various things. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Then thinking about the prevention side of it, this is really where structural and systemic and cultural change comes in. So the courts, are, they're pretty slow moving beasts, you know, to do things differently within courts can have ramifications for how, how justice is performed. So it has to be thought about very carefully. But for example, and there's, there's many examples of this, but if we think about the county court again, where judges sitting in crime there are hearing a huge amount of child sex offence matters, which understandably are, you know, among the most disturbing matters that, that come before the court. It's entirely possible just because of the volume of that sort of work 
that a judge sitting in crime could actually work for an entire year hearing nothing but sex offence matters, mm-hmm. which will be child sex offence matters. What the court has started to look at is can we put a limit on the number of the most disturbing kinds of cases that a judge can hear in a row before they do something else for a bit of a, a bit of a break before going back mm. into it. So kind of simple triaging and paying attention to that sort of thing. Also at the magistrate's court level, one of the biggest stressors that was identified was work volume. Just to, just to give people an indication, magistrates were frequently telling me that they sometimes have lists of upwards of 80 or 100 matters that they have to discharge in a day. Many of them complex, you know. So when the magistrate's court started grappling with this issue, one of the things that the chief magistrate did right at the outset was say, okay, we need to make sure that our sitting times are manageable, that magistrates sit in court from 10 until 4, not 9 until whenever, which is sort of what had happened, Mm. and that the lists are calibrated so that that's possible to make the job sustainable. Mm. Because even just the, I spend a lot of time talking about wellbeing at work across, you know, different industries and different sized organisations. And one of the things that I'm really big on is just physical movement, (laughs) just being able to get up, being able to go outside, being able to take regular breaks, being able to stay physically active, even if it's going for a walk at lunchtime. And if your job just requires you to literally sit. That's exactly right. And and to sit in a closed room that doesn't have windows mm-hmm. and doesn't have exposure to the outdoors and doesn't give you the opportunity to go and just take a deep breath and stand under a tree for a minute. Absolutely. That has massive you know, implications for our, our stress levels and our wellbeing. It does, absolutely. Yeah. And judges magistrates talk about that a lot. That and there's this sort of a joke that there's the five or ten kilos that <laughs> judges magistrates put on, you know. In the, in the year or so after appointment because they're not able to be as physically active as they were before. Mm. And particularly now with all the evidence coming out about the risks of a, a sedentary lifestyle and how important it is to be getting up and moving a few times every hour, judges and magistrates can't do that. They can't do that while they're in court. No. So it, I guess, increases the challenges to how do they add movement in, in other parts of their working life and the rest of their life. And a lot of them now have standing desks in their chambers. So when they're not in court, they're standing. There's actually um, one, one judge that I'm aware of who has taken it to the next level and got a walking desk. So he's got a standing desk with a treadmill underneath it. Yep. <laughs> when he's in his chambers working on a judgment, for example, he's kind of strolling along. Yep. So finding that's creative problem solving. Of, yeah, that's right. <laughs> finding creative ways of bringing in a bit more movement, which I think is is excellent. And it's great to hear that there are these kind of, uh, as you say, you know, the time has come for your research. There's been a lovely coincidence of an openness to thinking about these issues combined with your ability to present some evidence-based stuff in order to really put preventative programs in place and look at what are the structural and cultural changes that are required to keep people well in these positions but that little question before about you know what what is stopping these people from falling over altogether because when we take all of that kind of in totality and just look at it and think wow I don't even know how they survived this you did have some interesting findings from your research didn't you into factors that keep people as well as they can be or resilient at least absolutely I think it's a really good question this was one of the surprising aspects of the research because while judges and magistrates were reporting high levels of non-specific distress, burnout, secondary traumatic stress, it's not translating into high levels of psychological ill health, as I said. And then alongside that, when I asked judges and magistrates 
uh, what proportion of the time may experience stress at work versus what proportion of the time may experience satisfaction and well-being at work. More of them reported experiencing satisfaction, satisfaction and well-being more of the time and more of them reported experiencing stress less of the time. So they're doing a very demanding, very stressful job, but finding it rewarding, satisfying, and that it gives them a great sense of, of meaning and purpose and well-being. The way that I interpret that, well, I guess there's a, few, there's a few factors before we even get to the interpretation of that, because also judges and magistrates, I think about two-thirds of them said that they find judicial office on the whole, less stressful than their previous careers in legal practice. So I guess there's a few reasons as to what might be driving this difference. Firstly, you know, is judicial work just quantitatively less, less stressful? Maybe it is. I don't know. You know, maybe there's a, a greater sense of autonomy perhaps that, that people have in the role of the judge and the magistrate, being able to kind of control the courtroom and, and set timelines and that sort of thing. Also, judges and magistrates are appointed from the senior successful ranks of the legal profession. So these are those that have survived the stressors and rigours of legal practice and not only survived but thrived. So perhaps they are a subset of lawyers who are peculiarly suited to this sort of work. I was wondering whether there was a kind of almost a self-selection sort of component of this, that it was the people who were, you know, had what it took to get to that point who then can carry that forward into a different set of challenges? I think that's undoubtedly the case because those for whom the, the stressors of legal practice are simply too much, they leave early on in their career. And even for those who, who don't leave but perhaps don't thrive, they're unlikely to be successful enough to get the tap on the shoulder for judicial appointments. So there's that. And then the third factor I think also is that we know from a, a lot of population mental health research that Midlife and late midlife is a period of peak mental stability. So that's generally speaking where our mental health is at its most stable. And it's within that time, so from about sort of 50 to 70, when judicial officers um, mostly serve their time in office. So that's, that's another factor as well. Just a demographic factor. Yeah, demographic factor. And, you know, if we were to break down the research on lawyer stress into age groups, we may well find that it's younger lawyers that are struggling the most, you know, because um, as they're adapting to the profession. But then going back to, you know, how is it that judges and magistrates can have exposure to such difficult subject matter, have such demanding and responsible roles, such high workload, but be reporting high levels of satisfaction and well-being. This is just a a theory, I I guess, at this stage. But I, I believe that for the intrinsic sources of stress in the role, so By intrinsic, I mean those that are kind of part of the nature of the role, aspects of the role that, you know, are integral to the performance of the function. So having to control a courtroom involving people in a state of distress, having to do the intellectually, perform the intellectually demanding task of weighing the evidence and arriving at a decision, having to absorb and evaluate evidence of a traumatic nature these are undoubtedly stressful aspects of the job, but they are also the aspects of the job that make it meaningful, that drew people to legal practice in the first place, and that made those who were appointed to judicial office, made them want to take up that appointment because there's a, a wonder, and judges tell me this, you know, there's a, there's a, a wonderful feeling of, of purpose and also professional pride at times in being able to be that force of rationality that force of calm, that force of justice in the middle of 
the crises that life throws up for people. That's very meaningful. There's a sense of performing a really important social function there. So I think in a sense it's almost like many of the stressors are one side of the coin and on the other side of the coin are the, are the satisfactions of the role. So the two go, the two go together. Mm. So there's a wonderful positive psychology overlay Absolutely. for this. You know, when we look at the models of well-being and what we're really starting to understand contributes to well-being and resilience, those factors of meaning and purpose, I'm guessing there's probably a bit of engagement and flow that's involved in, you know, being able to kind of be intellectually and cognitively stimulated and, and get deep into a task or a, an idea or a decision that, you know, does get that kind of engagement and flow. So really significant components of well-being. And arriving at a solution. Yeah. 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 And that these counterplay against the stressors. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's something that really struck me too, is that it really speaks to that positive psychology message which is that our well-being is much more a function of of the meaning and purpose that we derive from our lives than just sort of emotional ease and pleasure. Mm, which does have real implications for how we look at occupational stress doesn't it rather than trying to take the stresses away which I think has been the traditional you know when we look at it from a, a physical safety approach you know well if we take all the risks away then we're safe but mm. it's not kind of how it works with psychology it's not how it works with our you know, our well-being, emotional and psychological well-being, that taking the risks away isn't enough. It doesn't equate to well-being. It's important, of course, to take away unnecessary risks. But really where the well-being is going to flow from in these complex roles in particular is where judges are assisted to build upon the meaning and satisfaction that's inherent in doing that work and also to find connections with each other in that as well. Mm. Um, And that's where some of that, those management strategies that I talked about before really come in. Yeah. Yep, yeah, adding that in as well. So there's two sides to it. Mm. There's the risk reduction plus the promotion of the wellbeing factors. That's right. And if I can just add one point in there, because when I was conducting the 60 interviews and I asked judicial officers, you know, what are the key sources of stress? Interestingly, the things that came up, the things that were front of mind, the first thing that people generally mentioned was workload. Yep. Then the things that people mentioned were what I call the kind of organisational cultural systemic sources of stress that are extrinsic to the role so they're not necessary for the performance of the judicial function but they're within the judicial working environment so things like perceptions of inequity in in work ethic and work distribution within the court environment difficulties with it between the administrative and the judicial arm of the court you know issues with how the media might might treat decisions those sorts of things and when I reflect upon that I think okay it's interesting that they were front of mind because when we think about it, those sources of stress, those, those that are, are extrinsic to the task of judging, don't carry with them any meaning. They're sort of pure irritations, whereas mm. the intrinsic forms of stress are also meaningful. So judges and magistrates, when, when they thought about stress, they weren't thinking about those intrinsic features of the role because they, they accepted those. It was what mm. they signed up for. It was these unexpected cultural environmental factors that really got to them yeah yeah which is such an interesting way to conceptualize it isn't it that you know this intrinsic versus extrinsic Mm. to the role because I think we can all relate to that we'll put up with a lot that relates to our tasks and what does give us meaning and purpose because Mm. it gives us meaning and purpose because it's what we signed up for it's part of the gig but the other stuff that's just annoying exactly (laughs) exactly yeah and you can't make meaning from that (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, that's right 
Carly, this has been such an insightful and interesting conversation on a number of levels. I've certainly learned a lot about the role of our judiciary and the system they're operating within. And I kind of felt like I knew a little bit beforehand. So, you know, you've, you've expanded my mind considerably there, as well as giving us some thoughts about some of these interesting things like meaning and purpose and where it does fit in with our well-being and our ability to withstand stress, you know, across all of our different careers and roles in the work that we do and, and probably our home lives as well. So <laughs> thank you very much for that. Where can people find out more or where could they even, if you're, you're doing the, the kind of speaking circuit at the moment, where might they be able to hear you or see you or find out a little more about what you're work is well there's a few I haven't uh, sort of set up my own website yet that's something I'll do on the other side of the PhD but uh, there's information about the research on the Judicial College of Victoria's website Mm -hmm. under the Judicial Wellbeing tab and also I've got a fair bit of information about it on my LinkedIn profile as well just under Carly Shriver yep and this research has kind of launched a conversation about judicial stress. And it's, as I say, it's very relevant to practicing lawyers. And then then also what I'm curious about now is to what extent does this research bear upon how we think about those in other high-level positions? Absolutely. Politicians, for example, people in visible roles with having to make difficult decisions, senior medical practitioners. So that, that's another question that I have as well. Mm. Oh, you've got a whole career ahead of you just in we'll this see. topic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Carly, I'll pop all of the links to, yeah, your LinkedIn profile, some of the, I know there's been a, a bit of press recently because you've yes. just recently released this first round of research outcomes. So I'll link to some of those articles, certainly to the Judicial College's wellbeing information there for people to be able to find out more. And you'll have to let us know when that website goes live and we can make sure that we spread the word about that as well. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you again. I've really enjoyed it. I think I've learned, well, I know I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot too. And yeah, we might think differently when we decide that, you know, we see a bit of media about our judicial officers and what they've done. Perhaps a little context might help create a little bit of empathy. Yeah. And uh, look, it's been a real pleasure. And I think people often don't think about the stress experienced by judges and magistrates because they are in such a privileged position in society. And they're certainly not seeking sympathy from the public, but it is good to remember that these are human beings fulfilling a really difficult role and they're subject to all the same human reactions that anyone would have. Yeah, We're all just human after all. That's right. Thanks, Alan. That was lawyer, psychologist, researcher and judicial wellbeing advisor Carly Schriever, who so eloquently and insightfully shared with us the complexity of judicial roles in our community and the factors that both contribute to stress and maintain resilience among our magistrates and judges. And Carly has very kindly shared her tips with us for maintaining wellbeing in all stressful and complex work roles, not just the judiciary. And you'll find these in her downloadable guest profile PDF in the show notes for this episode. In fact, you'll find all of the guest profiles and great tips shared by our guests in season five gathered together in the show notes. So you can download and benefit from all of them very quickly and very easily. Visit potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more or read some of the recent press regarding Carly's research findings or contact Carly, 
Carly herself or indeed learn a little bit more about meaning and purpose and how it contributes to our well-being. We've put links to all of that and more also in the show notes for this episode. So that is at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. And don't forget, we now have full transcripts for each episode on the website. So if you'd like to read as well as listen, or there was detail in this episode that you'd like to revisit, you can download the full transcript in the show notes too. And I have a little favour to ask of you. Have you left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts for the Potential Psychology Podcast? We would love it if you could. Ratings and reviews help to raise our profile in Apple Podcasts, which is still the primary way most people access their podcasts right now. And if we raise the profile of the podcast, then we raise the profile of our guests and the great work that they do to help us all to thrive and flourish. So if you're listening now on Apple Podcasts, flick back to the main page for the Potential Psychology Podcast, scroll to the bottom, rate us using the five stars and perhaps drop us a line to let us know what you like. I do read and appreciate every review and the time that it has taken you to leave it. So thank you. We'll be back next week with episode 49. We're almost at the end of season five and another fabulous guest. But in the meantime, go forth and thrive and flourish and stay warm. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon.